Luke chapter 2, I hope you will um, use the opportunity of this season to memorize this passage. If you don't know this, I learned it as a kid. Um, my parents made that a priority, and I'm so glad that they did. But I want to encourage you and challenge you to memorize this passage of Scripture uh, this Christmas and to work with your kids uh, for them to memorize it. They know the lyric of just about every pop song that's out there. They can memorize 12 verses of Scripture, right? Right? They know more than we think, even our little ones, okay? We need to teach our kids to memorize this passage of Scripture, whether they're in grade school, high school, college, whether they're married with kids. This is the challenge for us that we memorize this passage of Scripture. The Bible says, hide God's word in our hearts. Why? So we won't sin against him. And when you know this scripture, it gives you great power, it gives you authority, it gives you confidence to share the gospel. Because if you can remember the words of Luke 2, if you can, from your heart, be able to recite this to somebody and say what the angel said about unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign to you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the heavenly host. Uh, a multitude of angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. See how easy that is? It just comes back to you. I'm not doing that to show off. I'm doing that because that's powerful scripture. That's the gospel. What I just said in those three or four verses is the gospel. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to have great memory. You don't need training in evangelism, though it's a good thing. Because if you can recite this passage, if you can tell somebody the good news, and this is the greatest news that's ever been given to mankind, if you can give somebody this good news, you can share the gospel with them. You can tell them what it is that Christ came to do, how he saves mankind, how God's grace is glorious and powerful, and how we can have a holy relationship with him for all eternity because he's willing to forgive us from our sins. So this is a passage to memorize if you don't already know it. And it will give you strength and it will give you confidence uh, even on the worst days. Okay? 11 days to Christmas, there are 14 verses. That means a couple a day. Okay? 11 days, 14 verses. Let's learn and teach a few a day. And before you open your presents, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, take time as a family and say, let's, read the, let's, let's say the Christmas story that we just learned. And it's powerful, it's wonderful just to give perspective, if nothing else, of why are we celebrating. It's not the tree, it's not the presents, it's not the, the eggnog, it's not the cookies. It's about Jesus Christ. And the world wants so desperately, so desperately to take Jesus Christ out of Christmas. And we're not going to do it. So as believers, let's memorize, okay? Let's read the text. We, we read it last week, the whole thing. So we're going to hone in this morning on two sets of verses because they not only clarify why Jesus came, but they also symbolize people's responses to his birth. Okay? So Luke chapter 2, let's start in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Hopefully that's more meaningful now after our study last week. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Drop to verse 10. But the angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Salvation is for all, 
Anyone who receives Christ, he becomes a sons of, son of God. Okay? So this is for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, as we've read verses 6 to 7 over the years, uh, I don't know how long you've been saved or how long you've been reading the Bible. I've been saved four decades. So as we've read verses 6 and 7 over the years, we've probably developed some images in our minds of what this scene looked like. What it was like when Mary and Joseph uh, came to the inn and they were rejected and what the stable looked like. And we've seen all kinds of images, whether it's Christmas cards or, or pictures in media or whatever the case may be. We have a mental image in our minds of, of what that looked like. And whether Mary and Joseph were in some kind of a, a barn-like structure attached to an inn or or whether they were out in a cave in a surrounding hillside, as some people believe, or, or, or whether they were in much nicer conditions, which I'll explain in a minute, um, that, that, than we would suspect, surrounded by their entire family. We, we, we think of this in a certain way. Now, in doing fresh research for uh, these studies this year, um, I read a number of articles that speculate on the actual setting of Jesus' birth, and it is becoming increasingly common to conclude that Bethlehem was too small to have an inn, or a hotel, so to speak. And since the Greek word for inn in this text can sometimes be translated uh, for guest room, uh, there is a, a new and, and increasingly prevailing uh, theory or, or um, uh, theology that they were actually in some relative's home and that they were um, kind of in a lower level surrounded by animals who, who fed there. See, some homes in the first century were built on multiple levels, and there was a sleeping quarters, and then there was a living quarters, and then in some houses, um, there was a, a lower level that the animals were brought into at night uh, where they would feed and, and sleep. And under this theory, Joseph and Mary slept in this kind of family room because the house was so crowded from the census and that when Jesus was born that then he was placed in a nearby manger to hold him. Now this intrigued me and I and I really spent some time kind of saying all right well is is that is that opinion right is that um, theory of what this looked like correct because I I don't know maybe like you have always had the thought that there was kind of a, a barn or some sort of a grotto attached to the to the inn that they kind of went around to, and it maybe wasn't completely warm, certainly wasn't insulated, um, and and we've got that image, right? How many how many have an image like that in their mind of what the Christmas scene looked like? Well, it was interesting because I looked at one uh, website of a very prominent Christian television station that you would know if I said the name, but I'm not going to, and they wrote this, and I want you to listen very carefully. Unlike the traditional view that Joseph and Mary couldn't find room at the inn, in actuality, they would have been welcomed by their Jewish relatives who lived there. Now, I hope you noticed that there was a subtle disparagement there, that there was a subtle changing of what we know. They say the traditional view is that, um, that it was one way, but in reality, it was different. Now, the traditional view that they're talking about is what you hold in your hands. The traditional view is the scriptural text. And what they're essentially saying 
is that the Bible says one thing, but in reality, what actually happened is that they were in a relative's home being taken care of by family. Now, why do I make a big deal about that? Why is that important that we know that on a nice, warm December morning in Racine, Wisconsin? Why, why does that matter? Well, there are three problems with, with saying the Bible says one thing, but in actuality, it was something else. The first problem is that it, it rejects a literal interpretation of Scripture and forms theology based on a theory about culture. And my question would be, why would we nuance the details and try to come up with something different when the Bible says there was no room for them at the end? The prevailing word that's used here that I said can be translated gestrum is translated in. So this, this plays a little bit with the literal view of Scripture. The second reason it's a problem is that if Mary was welcomed by her family, no matter how crowded the house would have been and how many people would have been there, any good host would have looked at her and said, you're about to give birth and you're going to need some privacy. And it probably wouldn't be the best situation to stick you down with the dirty, filthy animals that just came in from the field and to have you put your baby in their feeding trough. Maybe we should make some provisions. You know what? Room four, you're going to have to move. You're going to sleep down with the animals tonight because our relative Mary here is about to give birth and we need to give her some space. So I struggle to believe that they're in a relative's house and they're relegated to the basement with the cattle. The third problem is that it goes against the deeper meaning of the setting in which Christ was born. And that is far above reason one and two. We're going to study that in a few moments. But I want you to understand, and I want us to understand, forgive me for saying that, that, that the point is that nothing about the details in this text is accidental. There's nothing here that just happens. Just like we talked about last week with the manger and the strips of cloth. That, that wasn't accidental. It wasn't like Mary, you know, just, just didn't know what to do and, and there just happened to be strips of cloth. It had deeper meaning that pointed forward 33 years. So nothing in this text is accidental. Everything has significance. So let's look at a couple details that we know, but let's review them again. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Now we would expect that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be born in the capital city, that he'd be born near the palace or maybe in the palace, that, that he would be in the city of God near the temple where God's presence was, ready to rule, ready to reign as he is worthy of doing. Even the wise men come and say, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod panics and gets terrified and starts massacring babies because they were looking for the king that was the true king that would take his place. So we would think when Jesus is born that he'd be wrapped in a royal robe from the moment of birth. But instead, he's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was such a humble town, such a, such a really nothing town, that it was publicly disparaged. Oh, you're going to Bethlehem. Oh, okay. That's real good. Even the prophet Micah, in Micah 5.2, when he prophesies about Jesus being born, basically says, Bethlehem, you're nothing. How could it be that the Savior is going to be born there? And yet, it was the city of David. 
And Jesus doesn't come in as a great warrior wrapped in robes declaring his authority. He comes as a child, humbly, not ready to rule right away, but ready to save people from their sins. Bethlehem, the house of bread, as we said earlier at the communion table, he's the bread of life, the one who feeds and nourishes those who trust in him so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He was born in Bethlehem. It was the perfect place. Second, would you see that he was born to people who are pictured as really nothing? They don't have a place to stay. They don't really have any power. They, they really can't even provide for some of the most basic needs like shelter. In a sense, just speaking humanly here now, they don't seem to have a real plan. Now, that's not a criticism. It's just an analysis of the situation. And there's significance to that because it's a picture of the hopelessness and helplessness of mankind that spiritually we don't have a clue. We don't have a plan. We don't have uh, things that, that we can provide for ourselves. We are unworthy and helpless. That's why a Savior was needed. So he's born in Bethlehem. He's born to people that really don't seem to have a, a, a really a sense of provision. He's born, we talked last week about the symbolism of the manger and the strips of cloth pointing to the cross and pointing to the empty tomb. And then there's, there's a fourth thing, and this is what the angel says here in verses 10 to 11. He says, don't be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In saying that, he's summarizing all of these intentional details that, that God has provided. That, that this child is going to be the Savior of mankind. Now, for him to be the Savior, for him to save us from our sins, there was one undeniable condition that had to be met. And I'm glad we had communion this morning because it symbolizes what we're going to study. There's one condition that was, that was uh, non-negotiable. There's one condition that had to be met for Jesus to be the Savior. And the condition is there had to be a sacrifice. There's no salvation without sacrifice. And the sacrifice had to be pure and it had to satisfy God's holy standard. And man had proven and God had proven for thousands of years from Genesis all the way up to Malachi that man could not save himself, that the sacrifice that was making atonement for sin was temporary, that's why they did it once a year, that, that this was not a permanent solution. So in Jesus' coming, he is saying, the sacrifice has to be me. Now we sang earlier, and I, I asked you, and you sang so beautifully this morning, I asked you to notice the words on what child is this. And there's one line that is just beautiful, but it's very sobering. It says, nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. That was the condition. That was what is required for sin to be defeated. Now, when you have a baby, all you can think about is protecting the baby, right? keeping it warm and keeping it safe. In fact, we all treated the first baby more carefully. We bought all the stuff. I mean, we're like, we're reading articles, what to expect when you're having a baby. I know all you ladies read that. 
you know, that, that thick little book, and we're looking at baby names, and everything's prepared, and we're painting the nursery, and it's, it's all wonderful, and no, oh, we made sure the car seat's right, and we got 19, 19 blankets, and we got, you know, every, and, and, and the first baby, right? There, everything is just like, we got to take every precaution. But, but by the third or fourth baby, it's like the Wild West, right? It's like, well, they'll just have to survive. They're the third. There are no rules. It's just survival. It's like the, uh, it's like the, <laughs> it's amazing. You, you just become more lax. It's like when a pacifier falls on the floor with their first baby, you're like, I got to disinfect. With the third baby, it's like you wipe it in your mouth and you give it to the kid. Here, you're fine. You're fine. There's no more, you know, sanitizing wipes every time the baby spits up a little bit and, and recording every moment as groundbreaking. We, we've got miles of video on Jacob. I mean, everything to my parents are like, why are you recording every single thing, like every minute of the day? It's like a, a cartoon I saw once called Baby Blues where the first panel, uh, it, it says, first baby's first sneeze. And the dad says, I got it with my camera and my video camera. And the second panel is the second baby's first sneeze. And he says, I got it with my cell phone. And the third panel is third baby's first sneeze. And he says, I got it with my sleeve. That's how it works. That first baby that you want to protect, you're just, your perspective is everything is locked in and zoned into. This is something that we now own that we've got we've to protect. So when Mary realizes what this baby's purpose is, it had to be a little bit disconcerting in her heart to know what was ahead. Imagine what she was feeling knowing that this child, her first child, Jesus, that, that the angel had been very specific about and had told Joseph about and had communicated through the angels that this baby, this child, was going to be the Savior. Now, Mary is no slouch spiritually. She is deeply committed to the Lord, and she knows Scripture and knows theology. If you read the Magnificent in chapter 1, she's quoting Old Testament prophecy. She's quoting Old Testament verses. She was rooted in the Word and walking with the Lord as a teenager. So when she's about to deliver this baby, and she's thinking, this is the Son of God who will save people from their sins... She knows exactly what it means. It's not going to be simple, and there's going to be a great cost because salvation only came through one method, and the method was sacrifice. And salvation only came through one means, and the means was the blood of the sacrifice. So if Jesus is going to be the Savior of mankind, Mary knows theologically that there's going to need to be a sacrifice and blood's going to need to be spilled and it's going to be him. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 16 that atonement had to be made to cleanse everyone from their sins before the Lord because sin afflicts our souls. See, life is in the blood. If you don't have blood, you don't have life. So blood had to be poured out to secure spiritual life. An offering had to be made for the people because of sin. And the blood of a spotless lamb had to be shed to pay for and cover sins so we can be purified and forgiven forever. Now Mary knows that. 
And while she may not have been able to picture the cross, while she may not have had that perspective left, yet she knew that someday this child, this son of God, had come to be bruised and beaten and pierced through and have his blood shed so he would be the Savior. Now, the greater significance of him being the Savior is that salvation was being offered. And that's where, when you look back at the text in verse 7, that's where this image of the inn comes into play because the inn is a picture of the human heart. First time I've ever seen this in 40 years of being saved. The, the inn is a picture of the human heart. Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth. They travel to Bethlehem for the census without the benefit of cell phones to tell people they were coming, without the benefit of the internet to make arrangements. And the implication, and I've, and I've spent a lot of time asking the Lord about this, the implication from the text in verses 1 and 2 is that once the decree about the census is made, there's a relatively short time span until they have to travel. Now, interestingly, in studying this, and I want you to know this, is that the historicity of the census is really being challenged. And you'll find article after article after article from secular websites that are saying the census never happened, there's no historical record of it, Luke was wrong, Luke made it up, Luke is just using this as a, as a method to try to develop the story. And I want you to be aware of that because the devil is working very hard to corrupt the text and call God a liar. And he's the liar. He's the liar. We need to either affirm that the Bible is completely correct and what we hold in our hands is factual, or we need to close it up and go home and watch the pregame show. Because there is no middle ground. We can't say, well, this didn't happen, and that did happen, and I like this text, and I don't really like this text, and this text is wonderful and encouraging, and that text is too challenging, so I'm not going to live by that. You, you can't play with the Bible that way. It's either true or it's not. So when it says there was a census taken, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, history records that Quirinius was governor of Syria during this time, and it records that Mary and Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why else are they going there? She's nine months pregnant. Why would you travel? No doctor in the world would say, yes, make a 50-mile journey on a donkey. That'll be great. Happy trails. Why are, they in Nazareth? Why are they in Bethlehem? There's no reason to be in Bethlehem other than there was a census. And they had to go to the city of David where their family was from and they had to register like everybody else. Now the point is they're not able to quickly communicate about their trip or make sure they have a place to stay once they get there. They're kind of flying blind. And we don't know how long they were there before she went into labor. We don't know from the text for sure whether it was that night, like we've always pictured it, they roll into town and there's no room and they go to the manger, she has the baby. They might have been there a couple days. We don't know. But the point is they weren't there long. And they weren't in a situation where they had accommodations. And the Spirit is clear to say there was no room at the inn and that Joseph and Mary find the best option that they can. And that option is filled with deep spiritual meaning. Now, in understanding this, it's hot in here, right? Do we need to open some windows? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, it's hot. In understanding this, we have to picture what they face. Listen very carefully. Let's not let the devil distract us. 
we have to picture what they faced before they got to the manger. There were three options. Listen carefully now. There were three options about what they could have faced in getting to Bethlehem. The best result would have been that they would, would be welcomed. That there would be relative and friends who would make provision for them to be safe and secure and comforted. That there would be a bed, at least for Mary, to, to, to be where the baby would have uh, you know, some privacy and, and they would be able to welcome Jesus into the world. But instead of, of being welcomed, the text is abundantly clear that they faced two other responses. The first response was that they were rejected. They were turned away at the inn. They, they couldn't find lodging. Apparently there weren't other friends or relatives that could accommodate them. We don't know who they knew in Bethlehem. Maybe it was just... Uh, kind of their ancestral birthplace, and they didn't really know anybody. People didn't travel then like we do now. So at best, there maybe was a very distant relative that, that they would know by name but didn't know well. So, so there's nobody there. They get rejected. There's nobody that's willing to make room for them. The second response is that they're tolerated. And I want you to listen carefully here because when, when someone is aware of the problem. They go to the inn, they meet the innkeeper, and they say, we need a room. He says, guys, seriously, it's a census. There's no room whatsoever, but, but you know what? I'll I, I kind of help you. I don't really know what to do, but, but I'll, 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 I'll let you stay back by the animals. Now, this person understands what's going on, in a sense. They're open to becoming engaged, but they don't really want to fully commit their hearts. Now, it's been common to conclude through the years that, that this is what happens with the innkeeper in Bethlehem, that they arrive looking for a room. There aren't any rooms available. He offers the stable, which is relatively warm, relatively private, though not ideal. And I don't want to be too hard on the innkeeper this morning, but I think there's a very strong spiritual principle here. He could have done more. He could have said, look, I empathize with you. You are nine months pregnant. It is clear you are about to give birth to a baby. And you know what? I don't know what to do, but I've got to find a real solution. And I've got to offer you some accommodations. And I've got to find a way somehow to help you out rather than sticking you in the barn. But what struck me so strongly as I study this is he really just gives, him, gives them his leftovers to appease them. Now think about that just for a second. If the innkeeper had known that Joseph and Mary were there for this reason, if the innkeeper had known who this child was, if the innkeeper had known what the eternal implications were of Jesus being born, would his response have been different? If they had showed up holding the prophecy saying, an angel spoke to us, and Isaiah prophesied about this, and Micah prophesied about this, that there's going to be a child born. We're telling you, that child is this child. This is the Savior of all mankind. And you need to understand that this will change eternity forever. If he had known that, what would he have done? This unnamed person who says there's no room plays one of the most significant roles in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, maybe more 
than anybody but Joseph and Mary. Because by turning them away, Jesus is born in a place where he's placed in a manger and wrapped in strips of cloth. Now you say, well, God knew that. Of course God knew that. God arranged that. That was not accidental. There was great spiritual significance to him being born there and placed in a manger wrapped in strips of cloth. We studied it last week. God could have easily provided lodging uh, for Joseph and Mary if he had wanted to send a different message. But we can't discount the symbolic nature of what being turned away at the end says to us spiritually about the heart of man. Because every person has to look at truth and decide whether or not they will turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ to save them. Being in church doesn't save you. Saying some prayers or doing some rituals doesn't save you. Being, uh, doing the right thing most of the time doesn't save you. Serving in the community and being philanthropic spiritually doesn't save us. It's not realized even by saying a prayer at some point at a moment of conviction and then not living any kind of transformed, set-apart, holy, a surrendered life. To be the same and similar to the world only indicates that our heart's not fully committed. So every one of us comes to the point of saying, what do we do with Jesus? And, and these three responses that they face are a spiritual metaphor for the different responses that we have to Jesus Christ, who offers us salvation through his atonement. Now here are the three responses. One is that we can reject him. Many in the world do this morning. We're not even going to consider it. We're unwilling to make room in our hearts for him. There's too much that I want to do. Uh, listen, trusting Jesus is just going to inconvenience me because he's going to say that I have to abandon my life of sin, and I don't want to abandon my life of sin. I like my life of sin. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to trust in him. I don't even know if he's real. I don't know if the cross was real. I'm not doing it. That may be you this morning. Maybe your heart is closed to Christ. No room at the end is a statement on your attitude toward Christ. Nope. Not going to do it. You've heard the truth many times, even today, but your heart's hardened. You're looking for another way of salvation, or are you just going to say, I reject the concept of salvation altogether. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life? Nope. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus Christ came to earth as living proof that you and I need him to save us. He bothered to come, if I can use that phrase. He bothered to come because we had no hope. He could have left us on our own, and if we could save ourselves, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But we need a Savior. And if your heart is hardened this morning or you're rejecting Christ, you need a Savior, just like I did in 1974, where I said to myself, you know what? Even as a 10-year-old, the way I'm living is not right. I'm in sin. I'm in rebellion against God, and I need a Savior. Or there's a second response, and I believe this one is far more prevalent than we think because many people have taken this position, either consciously or subconsciously, of just tolerating Jesus. Now, what does that look like? Let me... Try to explain this in the next couple of minutes and we'll pray. What does that look like? It's the attitude of the innkeeper. Interested, somewhat engaged, 
willing to go part of the way and, and, and be involved on some level and feeling pretty good about ourselves that we have given something of ourselves to God. But when sacrifice is involved and it's time to give ourselves fully to the Lord, there is a hesitation to commit wholeheartedly. So we relegate the Lord to what we have left over or what we want to give him and passively hope that'll be enough. I thought about the innkeeper late last night as I was lying in bed. Did, did the innkeeper lie in his own bed at that night and hear the sounds of labor taking place in his stable? You got to remember, windows were open. We were not air-conditioned and insulated like we are now. Everything was not private. He would have heard the sound of labor from his stable. He would have heard that newborn baby cry. Did he lie in bed and regret not giving more? Or was he blissful and content in his half-hearted involvement saying, I think I gave enough. Listen, does that describe you this morning? And I know that's very direct, and I struggle with that, that that's so direct, because I'm looking at myself, too. In the Old Testament, the Lord said, Israel, you're stubborn and you're obstinate, because you've never fully yielded yourself to me. You've never really trusted me. You've never really been willing to give up your idols and your control to me. Jesus said to us, if you want to come after me, and you don't hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother and your wife and your children, and even your own life, if, if you don't despise them compared to your love for me, you cannot be my disciple. There's no latitude there. There's no, well, he didn't really mean that. No, he uses the word cannot. Unless we are fully given to him, unless we are fully surrendered to him, we cannot be his disciple. We can't say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I live like the world. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I'm still in control. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I really don't have to trust him. I'm just, you know, I'll trust when I need to or when I'm in need. Cannot live for Jesus half-heartedly. There's no partial commitment. There's no, there's no, uh, uh, stay out in the barn, but, but I have room in my heart for and maybe you look at people and you say, they're so on fire for the Lord, or they're, they're so close to the Lord. My life's not like that. Listen, it doesn't have to be like it is now. It doesn't have to be. You can be on fire for the Lord. You can be living for the Lord. You can be in love with the Lord and surrender to Him, but we have to make room. We can't just say, well, take this, kind of the extras, and we'll talk later. That's the third response, and we're done. He deserves to be welcomed in. He deserves for us to know and admit that we need him. There's a line in Joy to the World, which we sang earlier, that explains that spiritual principle. Isaac Watts wrote, let every heart prepare him room. And that's really what it takes. It means preparing our hearts for him to abide. It means there's an intentionality in our thinking. 
there's an intentionality in giving up our will and sacrificing our will daily and sacrificing our desires daily and sacrificing our control daily and saying as we wake up, God, this day is yours and I'm yours and I'm going to trust you whatever. Rather than saying, thanks, Lord, for another morning. Now I'm going to go do my thing. And at the end of the day, I'll confess my sin and thank you again and I'll go to sleep. That's not how it works. Each of us in this room has chosen one of these three responses. Which one are you? Either you've rejected him and need his salvation this morning and God is more than willing. He's proven it on the cross. He's more than willing to save you. Or you're tolerating him. You're making some room. You're kind of involved. There, there's something there. You're a little bit engaged. But it's not wholehearted. Or he's your life. He's everything that you live for. There's no separation. There's no spiritual life. It's his life. Because when we say, well, my spiritual life is going well, that implies that that's just a little part, like my eating life and my work life and my hobby life and my rest life and my vacation life and my relationship life. No, spiritual life is everything. Is he everything? Does your choice say that you love him? and that you're grateful for his saving work, and that he's Lord of your life.